0: Well, we're gaining momentum. Each sermon, the last three, it gets, the text gets bigger and bigger. It's more just a personal goal to see how much I can do. Not really. This goes together. We're going to look at, at these plagues this morning in Exodus chapters 5, 6, I'm sorry. Where are we? 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Wow. We, we think of the, the plagues, and we usually call them plagues, because individually they're, they're often identified as a plague, but when they're talked about as a group, they're talked about as signs or wonders, and sometimes even signs and wonders. Uh, it, we don't typically tend to think about it this way, and even with the word plague, um, I don't, the word plague come, comes from an old word. It actually means to strike. Not like bowling strike, but like to hit. And this, this is a pugilistic match going on between two uh, foes, two forces. Uh, there's, there's ten of these, but really not just ten. There's really eleven, and we read the first sign is the, the staff that becomes the serpent. But as we go through the passages, let's, let's look at the list uh, going forward through 11. You've got the staff that turns uh, into a serpent. You've got uh, the water of the Nile turned to blood. You've got frogs that emanate from the Nile. And then lice or gnats, depending on your translation. Flies, animal diseases, uh, particularly among the livestock. Boils, hail, Locus, darkness, and then the death of the firstborn is announced in uh, Exodus chapter eleven, and then Chapter twelve begins this discussion of Passover and uh, the death angel, as we sometimes think of it and then call. so you, you see there's actually eleven of these signs uh, bracketed by one, the staff turning to the serpent, and then a the second one, the firstborn, death of the firstborn uh, the 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 nine inside actually kind of grouped together by threes they're. Three groups of three one two three four five six seven eight nine and there's really some intricate um, detail as to how they're structured organized uh, things that look similar but just enough variation uh, as we would read through them to give us some literary variety we're, we're not going to look at that con- comparison and contrast though you know my heart i would love to do that and i had slides made already but i took them out but but um, again, just a, a footnote. There is a symmetry, a beauty, an organization within the Word of God that's elegant, and it's part of the inspiration of Scripture. It's not just the ideas that are inspired in Scripture. The very words themselves are the inspired words of God and the way that they're organized is part of that artistry and that God-breathedness, that inspiration of what puts it together. Well, it, we think of these things and it, um, there, there is a, a pattern that just in simply we could identify. First, it's God who starts all this. God calls Moses and Aaron and says, I want you to say this to Pharaoh. And then they do. They dutifully obey and do as God instructed them, that is, Moses and Aaron. Thirdly, the Lord, Yahweh, overpowers the gods of Egypt. Every time, without fail. Every time, Yahweh overpowers the gods of Egypt. And finally, every time, Pharaoh's heart, his heart. So that, that gives you just a rough idea of how, how these will go. The gods of Egypt. Yes, God, Yahweh overpowers the, the gods of Egypt. In chapter 12 and verse 12, it specifically says that, that it is this conflict. On, the Lord brought these judgments on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And it's repeated in Numbers 33. On their gods also, the Lord executed judgments. This, when we read this, we might think this is between Moses and Pharaoh. Or I might think that this is between the Egyptians and the Israelites. But it's not. I mean, yes, there, there is a, a tangible, you know, within time and space continuum. Uh, there's a battleground, a battlefield. And the Egyptians... The Israelites, Moses and Pharaoh, they're they're on the battleground. But the real conflict and the real battle is between the Lord God Almighty and the gods of Egypt. This is where the striking is going on. This is where the boxing match, if you could call it that, is going on. Because these plagues fall upon areas of life in Egypt that they believed were protected by gods. They had a plethora of gods. That is a lot of gods, but they had about eight primary gods within Egypt. I'm sorry, eighty major deities. Eighty of them, uh, and they're they're clustered around uh, natural phenomena, things about life and existence, particularly the Nile River, water. Uh, the seasons would be greatly affected by the rise and the, the lowering of the Nile. The, the great soil that enriched along the sides was there because the Nile would rise and as it would descend, then recede, then left is this, this wonderful, fertile soil and crops were brought. So you have the areas of the water, you have the areas of the land and then you have the areas of the air. And there were deities grouped around those three components of life in Egypt. The first two plagues especially target the Nile. And then the first, uh, plagues 7 through 10 um, are against uh, the gods of the sky. And I skipped 3 to 6. 3 to 6 are against the gods of the land. I mean, these are generalizations in some sense. But here's an, here's a couple of examples. In plague number one, you have the uh, not water of the Nile turned to blood. And there's there's three major gods, and I don't have their pantheon memorized Is that, okay? So it's Osiris and Nu and Hopi. I, I'm familiar with the names anyway, but they're kind of the deities of the Nile. And in, interesting, the magicians and the wise men and the sorcerers, um, kind of a threefold office, three, three forms of government, um, they're, they're able to duplicate the first few of these, but they can't stop them. They can't reverse them. They can't change them. Uh, then, then the second one is the frogs. And there was this goddess called Heket, and she had the head of a frog, and she was a goddess of childbirth, goddess of fertility. Yeah. Uh, number five, the livestock disease. There, there's a temple at Memphis, not, not Tennessee. The original Memphis is in, in Egypt. And there's a temple there uh, with a bull idol that's to be the incarnation of Apis. It could be that the, the bull then becomes a temptation for Israel later on Uh, when they're looking to see, well, what's our god like? Uh, Number nine is really significant, darkness. Uh, They worshiped the sun, and one of the primary gods uh, was Re, or Ra, depending how you pronounce it. And he had uh, different aspects of his deity. There was the morning Ra, there was the afternoon Ra, and there was the midday Ra, Ra. some of, one of those names, amon Ra, you might know, and that's I think the noonday Ra. Well, he's he's the god of the sun. The sun brings life, and when the when the sun set, then that was, that was that's death. And when the sun rises, that was a depiction of life and hope and resurrection. And so they, they would go out, uh, Pharaoh and his and his family and entourage would go out to the Nile and bring a, a water offering. Uh, to the gods of the Nile, but also in the morning, then to worship Ra and the, the, the coming of the sun. Now, Pharaoh himself is supposed to be the incarnation of Amun-Ra. He, he would take on the, the attributes of God himself, and in fact was to be feared. Now these are examples, and some of the plagues uh, against certain, like lice. You know exactly which god would that be? Hard to know, um, but there was a god that was the god. I think a goddess of the scarabs, as like a bee, flying beetle kind of thing. All right, so you have those kinds of things going on, and uh, in essence, they were all about health and wealth. These are people that are dependent on an agricultural economy and so their values were related to the things of of the sky the land and the water that's where life comes from and that's what they valued and these gods were depictions of those things that they value fertility and life itself even health and so they have these gods that were to protect them when things go bad and God enters in. The real, one, true God enters in. And Ma'at, who's the goddess of, of order, is supposed to keep all these created things in harmony for a good life. And the one, true, living God breaks in and, like, reverses the creation order. It's like he, he brings chaos instead of order. In the midst of this because he's demonstrating he is the creator and he is the one true living god we have passages like colossians chapter 1 and hebrews chapter 1 and we understand that it is the lord jesus christ the eternal son of god who is the manifestation of god in the flesh the reality of god in the flesh but he is also the sustainer and the creator of all things everything that is visible and invisible Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made them. And they are subservient to Him. Well, this first sign, this first symbol is the staff and the serpent, right? And we don't exactly know which um, snake it was. You know, we'd we'd get like, you know, Cecil B. DeMille, I think it, it looks like a python. When when Moses throws the staff down, you you know Cecil B. DeMille's version, the colorized Ten Commandments, right? He throws it, and it's like it looks like some python kind of thing, and then and then Janice and Jambres, we don't know their name from Exodus or from Exodus, we know their name from the New Testament, referring back to this history. Janus and Jambres throw their down, and it like little tiny little cobras. I mean, not tiny, but, you know, skinny compared to the boa constrictor. We honestly don't know what kind of snakes they are, but there's some evidence and hint that they would be large, venomous kinds of serpents. Nonetheless, we, re- we recognize quickly uh, people who read our Bibles right from the very beginning that the serpent, the snake, that's bad news. Now we're not just talking about any dinky little garden snake or anything like that. They're all right. They are. All right, but but the serpent, the dragon, which entered into the garden, entered into the creation and brought chaos out of God's goodness and God's order, the serpent is there and he is a deceiver, he's deceptive. And we read of how there is this immediate confrontation. The, The snakes enchanted the Egyptians. There is another temple that was built in uh, the worship of a serpent goddess, and um, her name is Wajet. She was represented by the cobra. And it was this emblem of Wajet that Pharaoh would have on the hat. We often identify with uh, Ramesses II, right? The the nemes uh, is what it's called, and there's another fancy word. We won't worry about that one because I can't say it. Um, but the nemesis, you know, the one that kind of looks like that cobra shroud. And then the cobra little emblem right right on the tip. Well, this was to be the representation of his authority and the representation of his power, and he was to be feared. And Moses throws down the staff, right? It's like throw down the charge, throw down the gauntlet. And the three groups of professionals chapter 7, verse 12, 11 and 12, three groups of, of the government cabinet, the magi, the magicians, the sorcerers, and the wise men, they're all duplicating. The magicians can duplicate. Magician is, seems to be like a priestly term uh, that the Egyptians would use, some kind of, of priestly order that's here. And there is not only biblical documentation, which ought to be enough, but there is other ancient texts that describe the ability of the ancient Egyptian magicians to do stuff like this. Great power. And I think we, we need to stop and pause and say, this is real stuff. This is a narrative. We're reading it in story, but it's a real story. The supernatural things that go on, supernatural phenomena, are real. The forces of darkness are powerful. And Satan himself is deceptive and can duplicate, mimic, but only so far. In in this case, you notice there's no duplication of life. There's no reversal of the things that are going on here. Okay, they can turn water into blood too. Okay, they can they can they can produce snakes out of staves. But theirs get swallowed up. They can't reverse the frogs. They can make frogs come, but can't reverse it. There's just chaos and death. But the devil is deceptive enough to make it look like it's good, to make it look like it's life and light we're we're warned about this in the new testament this is not just old testament old covenant old people of god stuff this is new testament stuff too second corinthians 11 verse 14 satan disguises himself as an angel of light it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness Satan is the deceiver. And he uses trickery, magic, sorcery. These forces are indeed very real. When, when we get closer to the return of Christ, things will indeed get darker and worse in a manner of speaking. Paul describes the the days getting closer to the return of Christ like this. There will be a lawless man who comes. And the coming of the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This, this is a warning. Signs and wonders are things that we like to see. Maybe even things we long for, things we cry out for, things we hope for. Let us just be careful that signs and wonders are very often a manifestation of God's judgment upon a people. But these are things that are very real and there is a present day spiritual warfare as well we we do fight we do wage warfare but it's not against flesh and blood paul puts it this way in ephesians six, twelve: we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers against authorities against cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, let's back up. It says we fight against rulers and authorities. We're not talking about kings or queens or presidents or governmental rulers of, of human form on this earth. As the context goes on to say, cosmic powers, present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Rulers and authorities is one of the one of the hierarchy of the demonic realm we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces and very often you're there ready throwing off the gauntlet ready to hit fisticuffs at the person next to you and that's not where the real conflict is going on i'm not saying that the person next to you is possessed by a demon or anything of that nature although if they're not in christ the door is but we certainly can be influenced by the things going on around us in society and in culture and in the world. And he's throwing those fiery darts. And if we don't have the armor of God on, the shield of faith, to extinguish those darts, we'll get caught up in it and we'll begin throwing punches at the wrong places. We need to be wise and we need to be discerning. This is our passage in 1 John chapter 4. The whole thing, verses 1 to 6, is a a good treatment on this and I commend it to you for your homework this afternoon. But let me just read verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. We need to be discerning people and And this gets very, very simple, even well simple but not easy you know um, i've had opportunity to travel in in different parts and teach the Bible to other pastors and church leaders in other countries that don 't have the uh, resources that we have available to us and when we're talking shop and we're talking about life and ministry and how great we have it in North America and in the United States because we have all these books and stuff, and you can just go to the bookstore and you get all the good stuff. And I say, Wait, wait, you know, just because it's in the bookstore doesn't mean it's good. What do you mean? It got published. Isn't there somebody, any somebody, managing and overlooking, you know, what is good and what isn't, and what should be and what's not? And I said, No. Absolutely not. I wish there was. You know, and to be honest, I wish God would just step in and say, Nope, that one's not getting published. And this, why He allows, I don't know. But you've got to be discerning when you even go to the Christian paraphernalia store. You get a lot of Jesus potpourri and, and not really good, substantive, solid stuff. We need to be discerning. And that, that is, as Jonathan said, it's a lifetime commitment. But know that there is hope and that we have the victory. Paul tells the church in Rome, Romans 16 and verse 22, the God of hope will soon crush Satan under your feet. He will soon crush Satan, the serpent, under your feet. You are victorious in Christ. You might not throw some staff down and see it swallow up the garden snake in your yard but when Jesus comes you'll have the ultimate victory just know this we see this conflict between the spiritual forces of Moses day we have similar kinds of things going on today it's just not quite as in your face now there's a hard reality the signs and wonders and we we noted this a bit already it, In every single response, and I listed the verses here, every single response, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, from the first sign to the death angel, chapter 7 to 11, there is this observation that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. What do signs and wonders do? Very often, the majority response is hardness of heart. Now, yes, uh, there is a couple of these that say, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And like Jonathan's doing, we could go to the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, 11, uh, and and work on the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, and this is quoted in that section. That's beyond our scope, but what, what we do know from this passage is how? That's our question. How? How does God harden Pharaoh's heart? The signs and the wonders themselves produce the reaction that Pharaoh gives of disbelief and hardness of heart. His response to these is what hardens his heart. And, it is God who has brought these signs and wonders. And yes, it's reinforced. But Pharaoh stands as a warning for all of us. Don't harden your heart toward God. Now, I said Pharaoh didn't believe. But he saw everything. In fact, in one of them, he, he, he uh he, said, he hears word. What do you mean? The Israelites didn't get that plague? At some point along the way, God makes a distinction between Israel and, and Egypt. And some of these plagues don't come to Israel. And Pharaoh, what do you mean? Israel didn't get it. So he sends a delegation to go look and observe. Is that true? And it's true. He gets the report. He knows and he believes it's real and true. He, he sees the evidence. But he doesn't believe in the sense that he will not trust himself to the Lord. That's what faith is. That's what saving belief is. And trusting, depending upon this one true and living God. There is a warning. I hear it. You've heard it. Jesus heard it a lot. Give us a sign and we'll believe. I doubt it. That isn't the majority response. The New Testament people in, in Jesus' days asked, give us a sign, give us a sign, and he, and he did them. And the response often was what they already had determined. We're not going to believe. We're not going to entrust ourselves to you. It just solidified their heart against Jesus. Pharaoh's issue wasn't a problem of evidence It was stubbornness. There's a difference too between remorse and repentance. In many of these cases, uh, things are bad. The economy is really tanked in Egypt. And Pharaoh will say, forgive me. They'll even say, Moses, pray for me. Forgive me. He, w- he felt bad. He probably felt stuck with popular opinion, as if he really cared. But he wasn't genuinely repentant. He didn't actually change the direction in which he was going. He kept going against God. There is a difference between feeling bad for what you've done And actually transformation and walking away from sin. Again, this this was the reality in Jesus' day, John twelve, thirty seven. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Hmm. Hard heart. I, I did just a I wanted to see where if the hard heart was in the New Testament. Well, it is and, and I, I found just a, a, a little I'll say fun little surprise it's not that fun actually when we go through it of, of all the gospels Mark has the most references to the hard heart so this is not just a Pharaoh problem um It's a Pharisee problem. So in Mark chapter 3, I'll read these quite quickly. Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. Jesus entered the synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. There's a a hardness of heart uh, when it comes to religion. A hardness of heart when it comes to what's the right way to conduct our spiritual life? The right way to conduct our gatherings? Now, we we want to be God-honoring and biblical, no doubt about that. They wanted to see if Jesus would break their Sabbath law and heal on the Sabbath, quote-unquote, doing work on a Sabbath. He says, you have hard hearts. Your, Your own sense of right and wrong, not... Based on what God says, right and wrong, is an indication of a hardening of heart. Oh, I know, it's still the Pharisees. Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 9. Oh, it says the Pharisees again, you're safe. The Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus told them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote the commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Relational struggles, trials, antagonism, relational discontent is an indication of a possibility of hardness of heart. They were they were there's there's debate amongst the Pharisees' schools as to how much was too much and what you could divorce for and what you what you couldn't divorce for, and if you burnt the toast you could. One school. So there's this relational discord. When you see the discord, that's not the problem. That's the symptom. The problem is a hardness of heart. oh, this one's not the Pharisees. The next one, Mark chapter 8, verse 16. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to His disciples, His disciples? Yeah. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread do you not yet perceive or understand are your hearts hardened having eyes do you not see having ears you not hear do you not remember when i broke the five loaves for the 5000 how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up and they said to him 12 and the seven baskets for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, and yet you still don't understand? Now, he, he, had, he had pointed out their hardness of heart earlier in chapter 6, verses 51 and 52. Yeah, even, even disciples can have a hardness of heart. Guess what, folks? It's not just Pharaoh, and it's not just the Pharisees. It's us folk that have the danger and risk of a hardened heart. These disciples are anxious and worried about provision. About whether Jesus is enough. And when we get anxious and worried about those kinds of things of this life, our hearts are calloused. Oh, well, we're going to break away from Mark now. One more. There are, there are a couple more, but we'll just do this one in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because the judge, you practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, we were just told earlier we, we need to be discerning. We need to be wise. We need to be able to discern right from wrong, good from evil, truth from falsehood. But we're to do this with a spirit of love and not a critical harshness and judgmentalism Because when we slip into that kind of mindset and that kind of attitude very subtly, then we have become the very thing of which we're critical. Judgmental. I suppose we might say this is the hard heart of hypocrisy, but it's the hard heart of a critical spirit. And it comes out in big ways. It comes out in small ways. When you get angry and upset because things didn't quite go the way you want them to go, like why in the world is the dining room table loaded with all this stuff? And you just go ballistic. And then you go down to your little den And look at your desk and you're fine. Hardness of heart. Oh, I know we like to say hypocrites are the people in the church, but no, it's the people there in your den. Hardness of heart. A discontentedness is a symptom of a hard heart. Proverbs 28.14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Well, I want to take that that, uh, little side road into the New Testament. And again, show us this is not just a Pharaoh problem. And it's not just a Pharisee problem. This is our problem. Now, I hope you're not Pharaoh, and I hope you're not the Pharisee. But in honesty, I can't assume that. If you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're one of the others of some strain. Now, in the midst of all this, remember this this is back in Exodus. This is God against the gods of Egypt. Sounds like a movie title or something. The one true living God against the gods of Egypt. The lesson principle for us now is turn away from your idols. What we have here in seven, ten, and 11, 8, and 9, 2 is in narrative form the teaching that will come to us in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or an earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Does that not sound like the three categories of these plagues? Wow, God knew what he was doing. And he's warning his people against the same problem. Don't make anything carved in the image and likeness of things that are in heaven above or then the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thinking, well, I haven't done any wood carving for a long time. Last time I did major wood carving was in high school in wood shop and we did little duck decoys. Made that image. Well, okay, but we still have a problem with idolatry. Our idols might not be quite so materially statuesque. But they're just as elaborate and exotic. Those, those carved representations were pictures, statues of what a society and what a culture values as important. Again, in an agricultural economy, what's important? Good crops. Lots of lambs, although Egyptians hated shepherds, but they loved cows. In fact, Ra was taken up to heaven in a cow, on a top of a cow, but that's another story. Those things that brought them life became what they valued. It was a center of their economy. It was the center of their life and society. So what is the center of of our life in society. What what's the value, the primary goals that we set forth? And in this day, you know, maybe maybe our images aren't aren't as much three-dimensional, though I would take issue. Some of them might be parked in my garage. But but if we really want to begin this process, well let's Let's go let's go to our devices. And let's look at the photos. Let's look at let's look at the, all those folders and what's inside and what what what's the prevalent subject of your photography. And that just might be a good place to ask the question, could that subject matter have first place in my life? Or a lot of words go around these days and same kinds of devices. And Go, go look at the, the content and substance of your posts and of your blogs? And what is the summation of those topics? And that might just be a good place to ask the question, does that topic have major priority, top priority in my life? And if the answer is yes, and it's not God, and probably won't be because there's no picture of Him then we've got to battle with idolatry. That is the edifice of what you value and esteem most. Now, I'm not saying that every collection of your family photos means that you're idolizing family. But it's possible. And this is just one way to begin and ask the questions. What consumes your thought? What consumes your mind? And if Christ were to confront this priority in your life, if Jesus was to remove it from you, would you love Him all the more? If if Christ were to confront you with the desires of your heart and tell you, no, you can't have that one. It's not good for you would you embrace Him all the tighter? The apostle writes to the church, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. These... uh plagues, these signs and wonders, find a, a repetition in Revelation, chapter 9, chapter 16 especially. What's happening in Egypt is really simply an object lesson. It is a foreshadowing of the final judgment that is to come. And the summation of all this In Revelation 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent. This is a warning for you and I to put away the idols. And if we will not, then we will face the possibility of this final judgment because we really don't belong Jesus if we've got anything that's of top priority over him we've got to wonder do I really have faith a belief a trust a dependence on Jesus and Jesus only he's enough now we can After moments like this, have emotion and a quick response like Pharaoh. Now, we're to forgive one another 70 times 7. And we will fall down, but we're here to pick each other up. But what we're looking for is a genuine confession of sin. A genuine desire to turn life around, away from self, 180 degrees, and follow Jesus. That's what the image of repentance is. Pharaoh is an infamous example of a phony. Don't follow him, follow Jesus. I'm going to bring a, a prayer of application and then we're going to have opportunity for us all to respond in prayer. And as I'm praying or when I've completed praying, if you would like to come for prayer, I'll be here. If, if there's something you need to get rid of, now's a good time to get rid of it in your heart and hold on to Jesus. Let's go to Him now. Our Father in Heaven. It's not only a, a big chunk of passage in Scripture, but it's a really big issue in our hearts. We're really quick, Lord, to have passed judgment on Egypt and Pharaoh. We kind of just overlooked our own situation. Our own reactions. Our own infatuations. Our own desires. That are opposed to you. And now we would call out to You to change our heart, to make us new, to confess our sins, and to rest in Jesus. We're going to reflect upon the music and the words that go with it. And let's just take time to spend with the Lord.